Every parent wants to be a super dad or a super mom. But understand, these cape crusaders don't exist. Though I desired to be a super dad, at times I felt like a super dud. You know, being a parent is the most difficult job you'll ever tackle. I was once told, you should have realized that anything that began with the term labor was not going to be easy. Parenting kids is certainly a challenge. Reminds me of the mom who came home from the hospital with triplets. Triplets, no less. Her four-year-old daughter took one look at her new siblings and she shouted, We better start calling folks. They're going to be a lot harder to get rid of than the kittens. (laughs) And trust me, they are a lot harder to raise than kittens. Parenting is a tough gig. Hey, you thought a parent's job was to help their children grow up, but often it's the children that cause the parents to grow up. Sometimes we parents learn more from our children than our children learn from us. I brought with me today a top 10 list. Perhaps you can relate to this. Here are the top 10 things I learned from my kids that I didn't really want to know. The top 10 things I learned from my kids that I didn't really want to know. Number 10, a four-year-old's voice is louder than 200 adults in a crowded restaurant. Number nine, when you throw a baseball into a spinning ceiling fan, the blades can hit the ball a long way and generate enough force to break a double-pane window. Number eight, when you hear the toilet flush and the words, "Uh uh-oh, it's already too late. Number seven, Legos will pass through the digestive tract of a three-year-old human being. Number six, the words Play-Doh and microwave should never be used in the same sentence. Never. Number five, MacGyver reruns can teach a child many things he doesn't need to know. (laughs) Number four, two-year-olds can make one-click purchases on Amazon.com. I have some close relatives that can verify that. Number three, marbles or rocks in a gas tank will make lots of noise. Number two, the spin cycle on a washing machine does not make earthworms dizzy. It will, though, make a cat dizzy, and a dizzy cat will throw up twice its body weight. (laughs) Things that you learn from your kids that you really didn't want to know. And then last, but definitely not least, quiet does not necessarily mean everything is okay. (laughs) As a parent, we can feel overwhelmed at times. And here is where the Word of God and the Spirit of God come to our rescue. For God doesn't call us to do what He doesn't equip us and empower us to do. It's His promise. We all can parent effectively. For God has given us a purpose. He's also given us tools to accomplish that purpose. And He's told parents what to avoid. Here's what we've been talking about over the last three weeks. A PTA. A parent's purpose. A parent's tools. And then today... A parent's avoidances. In verses 1 through 4 of Ephesians 6, Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. 
Remember, a child's duty becomes a parent's purpose. That's why we should teach our children obedience and respect. And we do this with two tools. A parent's tools are the training and admonition of the Lord. Discipline and encouragement are, as Martin Luther said, the rod and the apple. But that's not all Paul tells us. He also gives us a parent's avoidances. For in verse 4, he tells both mothers and fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. This Greek word translated provoke, it means to anger or to frustrate. Other versions render it, don't embitter or irritate or exasperate or nag or vex or goad or overcorrect or be hard on your kids. The Amplified Version puts it, Fathers, do not irritate or provoke your children to anger. Do not exasperate them to resentment. See, you can bring up a child in the training and admonition of the Lord. You can give that child a rod and an apple, those warm hugs and the wooden spoons, the encouragement and discipline we discussed last week. But if you needlessly frustrate your child, you can create in them a resentment that will undermine the good that you're doing. Even well-meaning parents can make little mistakes that provoke their kids. To provoke a child is to needlessly irritate. And the key word there is needlessly. Hey, I once polled my oldest two kids, what does your mom and dad do that irritate you? Here were their answers. You spank us. You make us go to the grocery store. You wake us up early for school. You don't give us Coca-Cola when we want it. You make us go to bed too early. Hey, but these are necessary irritations that hopefully one day they'll appreciate. My question to us this morning is how do we needlessly needle our children? How do we pointlessly pester, badger, and beleaguer? How do you chafe your child? Our kids are extremely impressionable. We need to handle them with care and sensitivity. When you approach kids... Make sure you're always wearing kid gloves. Today, I want to give you a 12-point checklist that you can use to determine if you're guilty of provoking your child to wrath. 12 parental mistakes that we all need to avoid. The first way to provoke a child is with negative comments. In her comedy routine, Joan Rivers cracks a joke, I knew I was an unwanted baby when I saw that my bath toys were a toaster and a radio. It's sad, but when parents communicate to their child, either overtly or indirectly, that they're not wanted, this creates a sadness. This provokes them needlessly. In God's mind, there are no unwanted children. Every child is loved and desired by God. It always grieves me when I hear a parent refer to his or her child as an accident. There are no accidents in the plan of God. If you view your child as unwanted or as an accident, even if you never say it, they'll pick up on that attitude. Psalm 127 verse 3 tells us, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is His reward. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. For me, a quiver full was four. Four no more. Someone once asked me to describe my kids. I said, well, the oldest one, he's the quarterback. You know, he's kind of the leader of the pack. 
The second one, she's the daughter. She's my cheerleader. She's always cheering us on. The next, he's the running back. He's the, the bull in the family. He's the one with the power. And they said, well, what's your youngest one? I said, he's the end. <laughs> but with each of my four kids, they've all been a heritage. They're a reward in their own way. They have provided us great happiness. We've always seen our kids as a blessing, not a burden. A little league coach once told me about a mom who pulled her son from a game to go home early. The kid happened to be up to bat that inning, and if he left, it was going to cost the team an automatic out. The coach tried to explain the situation to this anxious mom, and he begged her, please let Billy stay long enough to have his at bat. As the mom walked off with her son in front of all the other parents and players, she turned and she shouted, Ah, Billy's no good. He'll make an out anyway. We've got to go. Tragically, she said that without thinking. Some parents make negative comments without any thought as to their impact. Their mouth goes on a shooting spree. Hey, adults forget that kids are fragile. They're breakable. Hey, you don't toss bone china around the kitchen like you would paper plates. And you don't handle kids as if they were adults. A child needs to be treated delicately and deliberately. Always handle your kids with kid gloves. I understand parents get tired. At times, your weariness can taint your attitude. Sometimes we're tempted to view our children as a pest or a nuisance or a bother or an interference. Hey, resist that temptation at all costs. Reminds me of the dad who brought his four-year-old daughter to the hospital to meet her, her newborn brother. The sister looked at the baby through the nursery window and noticed the identification bracelet around the baby's ankle. She turned to her daddy and she asked, when are they going to take off his price tag? Hey, if you're a parent, you know having a baby is costly. And the financial expenses are just the beginning. Add the love and the energy and the time and the effort that we extend. A lot goes into raising a child. Babies are expensive, but they have no price tags. A baby is priceless. No value can be ascribed to a human life. An eternal soul created for God's presence is sitting in your high chair. Or maybe now in your driver's seat. Hey, your child is a blessing. Well, a second way to provoke a child is with broken promises. A child hangs on the hopes, hangs all of their hopes on a parent's words. Make an idle promise that you don't fulfill. And it may not be a big deal to you, parent, but it can crush your child. This was hammered home to me one day when I promised my five-year-old son, Mac, that I would take him to the ballpark and hit some baseballs. But first, I needed to take care of a few things at church. Well, as usual, those few issues turned into six or seven hours. When I finally got home, my five-year-old was sitting on the porch with his glove and his bat in hand. And we had a wonderful time at the ballpark, just as I had promised. But later, Kathy told me that Mac had been sitting on that front porch all day long waiting on me. He'd been waiting on me for six hours. He had been fixated on that promise. You see, to a young child, a parent's words are power. Our children have total confidence in what we say to them. See, here's their assumption. My parents brought me into the world. Nothing is beyond their abilities. 
That's why a parent needs to be careful with his promises. Don't disillusion or disappoint your child. They don't understand your extenuating circumstances. The trust between a parent and a child should be considered sacred. Don't let anything violate that trust. How can we expect our kids to receive the instruction that comes from our mouth if they can't believe the promises that come out of that same mouth? Be deliberate with what you've promised and then be determined to follow through and keep that promise. Well, the third way to provoke a child is with deaf ears. How often do we fail to really sit down and make the effort to listen to our children? Proverbs 20 verse 5 tells us, Counsel in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. All kinds of thoughts and feelings and fears are swimming around in your child's mind. Parent, your child needs for you to stop barking at them long enough to listen to them. Are you attentive to your children? When Zach was three or four years old, he went to spend the night one Friday night at his grandpa's. And they were playing cowboys, and as usual, their guns were blazing. They were shooting up the place. People were dropping like flies. And every time Zach got shot, he'd fall to the ground. His granddaddy would race over and to the wounded cowboy, and he'd open up his shirt and make a little incision and pull out the bullet, and then sew him back up. And then he'd jump up and start playing again. Well, during the shootout, Grandma happened to walk by. And as soon as Zach hit the deck, she decided to jump in on the action. She opened up his shirt, she cut out the bullet, sewed him back up. But rather than popping back up like he'd done before, Zach just laid there motionless on the floor. Finally, Zach sort of said with a groan, he said, But Grandma, there's one problem. They shot me in the leg. <laughs> Lots of parents approach their kids with all kinds of solutions without first listening and identifying the real problem. A college president once explained his success, Grow antennae, not horns. In essence, he was saying, be a good listener. And this is great advice for a parent. Often a behavior that we would like to gore is really our child crying out for help. Have your antennae up. Be sensitive to your kids. The fourth way to needlessly needle a child is to play favorites. In one sense, a parent lo- if, if, a, if a child ever senses that a parent loves another sibling more than him or her, it can produce deep-seated resentment in that child. A resentment that one day may erupt in an all-out rebellion. The classic case of this is Joseph. You remember Jacob's favorite? Jacob gave his son Joseph a psychedelic leather jacket. That coat of many colors. He favored him over the other sons. But his brothers were jealous of the special treatment. Remember, it was Jacob's fault. But guess who they took out their frustrations on? On Joseph. They feigned his death. They sold him into slavery. Joseph was a victim of his father's favoritism. I have three sons and one daughter. And for some reason, my wife has always thought that I was tougher on my grimy, sweaty, gritty, gnarly, nappy, roughneck little boys than I was on my sweet, precious, adorable can do no wrong, princess. 
I never saw what she was talking about, but to humor Kathy, I tried to guard against any kind of fatherly favoritism. Seriously, you may have a child whose interests and personality draw you to them, but work hard to make sure that you don't favor them over your other kids. The fifth way to provoke a child is to force him or her to be something they're not. While coaching Little League, I saw this all the time. A dogging dad trying to live out his failed ambitions through his kids. It's so sad. Hey, realize, children don't enter the world a blank slate. Their genetic makeup predetermines a host of traits and talents and tendencies. Old parents quickly realize the influence of heredity when their child makes the honor roll. Oh yeah, it's in the genes. But we blame their environment when the same child has to stay after school for detention. Heredity is the reason that two children born into the same family, vulnerable to the same environment, trained by the same parents, subject to the same rules, can turn out so differently. Have you noticed this? Children are like snowflakes. No two kids are the same. And thus, no single parenting style works for every child. Cookie-cutter approaches seldom work when it comes to parenting. Proverbs 22, verse 6 is the most often quoted verse in the Bible on child-rearing, but it is also the most misunderstood. Solomon said, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. But when we read that verse, we often emphasize the word way. Train up a child in the way he should go. Thus, we assume that there must be a single way to parent. There must be one way that's best. Usually, it's my way. But in the Hebrew language, the verse emphasizes the word he. Train up a child in the way he should go. Commentator Matthew Henry offers this translation of Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child according to his capabilities. In short, tailor your training to the individual child. Adapt what you're doing to the child's interests and abilities and disposition and limitations. A wise parent discovers the talents and interests that God has hardwired into that child's heart. Then he or she encourages them in that direction. If your child is an artist, don't try to force her into being an athlete. If he's a musician, don't expect him to become a mechanic. Don't try to rewire your child. You might just blow a fuse. The sixth way to provoke a child is to set expectations that are too high. I'm convinced that today's world expects far too much from kids at a far too early age. Did you know that today there are triathlons for seven-year-olds? There are summer camps that teach kids about stocks, bonds, and mutual funds? Kids no longer have time to just be kids. Sometimes parents will expect a three-year-old to have the same attention span as an older sibling. Or they demand a slower developing son to bring home the same high grades as his studious sister. Children burdened down with impossible expectations end up burning out and often giving up trying to please their parents. Jesus' words to the legalistic Pharisees also applies to pushy parents. Matthew 23 verse 4. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. Do that to your children and you'll regret it. Hey, maybe your child doesn't want to be a doctor. 
Maybe your child would be happy being a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter. It was good enough for God's son. Why not yours? Too much pushing from a parent can harden a child's heart. Seventh way to frustrate your child is to have no or low expectations. Your expectations can be too high, but they can also be too low or even non-existent. Hey, you'll find a few kids are self-motivated, but most kids need some form of external motivation. They need gentle nudges at times. Hey, when faced with obstacles, it's the human tendency to opt for a path of least resistance. Too often our kids, especially, are quick to settle for less than their best. Children have to be taught that some obstacles shouldn't be bypassed. There's some mountains that need to be climbed. At times, a parent needs to keep their kid going. A parent needs to know when to prod their kids. When Carol saw that her daughter's feet turned inward, that her toes pointed toward each other, she decided to do whatever it took to help her little girl. For four years, her daughter wore corrective shoes. By age six, she was walking normally, but Carol wasn't satisfied. She wanted her daughter to participate in an activity that would force her to use her feet and legs and stretch their range of motion. The little girl chose ice skating. And for 15 years, Carol carted her daughter to and from the rink. That's why when Christy Yamaguchi climbed to the platform to receive her gold medal in figure skating at the 92 Winter Olympics, she knew that her success could be traced back to her mom. Carol Yamaguchi. Carol was a mom who dreamed for her little girl. See, all kids have dreams, but they've yet to learn that those dreams come true through hard work and determination. And it's a parent's job to teach their sons and daughters the value of persistence and patience and preparation to keep the prize in front of their kids. Well, the eighth way to pester or hinder a child is to be overly critical. You know, sometimes we parents lose perspective. Have you ever caught yourself, you're focused on the one C and you've ignored the five A's? It's happened to me. We see the cup as half empty rather than half full. Parents, do your kids see you as impossible to please? If so, you're provoking them to wrath. Understand, a child craves their parents' approval. They thirst for it emotionally, like they need water. And if a child doesn't get it from their parents, they'll get it elsewhere. She'll turn to a boyfriend or he'll turn to a peer group. Kids need their parents to be cheerleaders, not critics. Well, the ninth way to provoke your kids is by neglect. Parents never forget that kids spell love, T-I-M-E. They do. Child psychologist Kevin Lehman once wrote, I heard parents talk about quality time, but in all my years of private practice, I've never heard a child mention the term. All a child knows is that he wants your time and attention, whether it's to watch him do somersaults and cartwheels or to take him for a Big Mac. Lehman concludes, in trying to find time for your children, don't worry too much about how much quality is in it. Give them all the time you can and the quality will take care of itself. Parents, you have the rest of your life to pursue your career ambitions, but you only have a few short years to spend time with your kids. Whatever you do, whatever mistakes you make, don't neglect to spend time with your children. You provoke your kids 
if they never see you. You know, it's sad, but some parents act like their kids come with a pause button. That you can just push pause on your child's development while you go off to do your own thing or to grow up. They're under the illusion that the opportunities will still be there when they get ready. Wow, are these naive parents in for a rude awakening? Parents, by the time you're ready, your child may no longer care. I love this quote by author Wade Horn. He says, my father was a great dad. I didn't always think so, of course. When I was growing up, I mostly thought of him as an overbearing, autocratic stick in the mud whose main mission in life was to make mine miserable. But I have since come to realize he had one great quality. He was there. Someone once said 90% of life is just showing up. My dad showed up. I always said if my kids turned out bad, it was going to be because they spent too much time with me. I believe a father with faults is still better than a father who's absent. Hey, just being there goes a long, long way. You know, the fact that I was part of my daughter's life and I was there to answer the door when that boy came over to pick her up, that alone kept certain types of boys away. If I was home, wild parties had a harder time breaking out in my house. Certainly, my kids were able to sneak off and do whatever they wanted behind my back, but that was the point. They had to sneak off. They had to do it behind my back because my wife and I were around. You see, just being there matters more than you think, parents. And while we're on the subject of parental neglect, let me mention another form of neglect that I think is especially lethal, and that is the spiritual neglect of our children. I know parents who have their kids in sports and music and art. They're in all kinds of extracurricular activities, but they leave out church. Parents who neglect their spirit child's spiritual training are making a crucial mistake. Hey, as long as my kids lived under my roof and were bankrolled by me, they went to church on Sundays. I know at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, we do our best to make church fun for our kids and our middle schoolers. And this is why it bothers me whenever I hear a parent say, well, my kids didn't want to come to church this morning, so I just left them at home. What if they said that on Monday morning about going to school? Hey, you you would make them go because they need it. And then you would require them to like it. And this is the attitude we need toward our kids' spiritual training. Hey, if your kids come to church, they'll have a good time. But they may need their parents' insistence on getting here. Hey, with four kids, we did it all. Soccer, baseball, football, cheerleading, basketball, dance. But I got it written down. Softball, roller hockey. You name it, our family did it. And we saw great value in our kids' participation to a point. But we also realized that you can invest thousands of hours sharpening your kid's batting skills and making sure he can dribble a soccer ball and that she can do a backhand spring. And yet when they reach adulthood, their athletic skills won't be nearly as important as the strength of their faith and their knowledge of God. It's crucial with everything else you do with your kids, bring them to church. Together as a family, grow in Christ, learn God's Word, apply it to your life. Make your children's spiritual training a priority for them and for you. 
And then the tenth way to frustrate your kids is the failure to discipline. Hey, if you let your kids walk all over you, or just brush you off, or ignore your rules, if you cave in to their manipulations and their threats, you're provoking them to wrath. You're needlessly provoking them. You know, it's been said, kids will forgive you for your mistakes, but your weaknesses will send them elsewhere for strength. And boy, have I seen that come true over and over again. I'll never forget the night I put my kids to bed, and Nick, Nick was three years old at the time. And I had just gotten comfortable in my recliner when all of a sudden, here comes Nick parading through the room, just sashaying through the room like he owned the place. I said, son, I put you to bed. What in the world are you doing up? And I'll never forget it. He turned, he kind of turned up his little nose at me, and with this defiant look on his face, he says to me, he says, Dad, mind your own business. And I proceeded to show that young man exactly what my business was. <laughs> hey, as much as we love our kids, at times a parent's place is in their kid's face. It is our business to discipline our kids. Children respect their parents only if you calmly but firmly stand up to them. If you cave into a child's demands because you're afraid of a fight or a little friction in the family, you've made a huge mistake. It's a parent's business to make their kids mind. Though they might never admit it, I believe kids desire a parent's discipline. Boundaries provide a child a sense of security. It lets them know that someone in their life cares. Never forget the high priest Eli. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 13 tells us that he was judged by God because, and I quote, his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. Perhaps he thought if he came down too hard on them, he'd lose them. The opposite occurred. Because he didn't restrain them, he lost them. Eli allowed his son's rebellion to go unchecked and God judged both him and his sons. Well, an eleventh way to provoke our child to anger is to set a double standard. Kids have a sixth sense. I think they were born with it. They're born with a baloney meter. They can detect hypocrisy and duplicity a mile away. And they get seriously turned off when a parent doesn't practice what he or she preaches. Parent, if you want credibility with your kid, if you want their respect, then behave in a respectful way. Be worthy of their respect. Hey, you can tell your kids to stay off drugs until you're blue in the face, but if you abuse alcohol, they won't know what's the difference. Don't ground your kid for cheating on a test when you've got a radar detector mounted on the dashboard. If it's wrong for your daughter to sleep with her boyfriend, then it's wrong for her single mom to do the same. Don't set a double standard. If you want your kids to listen to what you have to say, nothing will impress them more than your own humility and sincerity and genuineness. Hey, don't expect your kids to embrace values to which you only pay lip service. Here's a poem entitled, The Better Way. It was written by a man named Edgar Guest, but it could have been written by your child. 
I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely show the way. The eye's a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but example's always clear. And the best of all the preachers are the men who live their creeds. For to see the good in action is what everybody needs. I can soon learn how to do it if you'll let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lectures you deliver may be very wise and true, but I'd rather get my lesson by observing what you do. For I may misunderstand you and the good advice you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. And finally, the twelfth way for a parent to provoke their child to anger is to be overprotective. See, I believe the job and the goal of a parent is to work themselves out of a job. You know, a parent can expect their child to need them at 7 years old, even at 17 years old. But if that child's still dependent on their parent at 27 years old, something went wrong. When my fourth child was born, I had the privilege to cut the umbilical cord. They didn't let me do this with the first three. But with the fourth one, this was kind of in vogue. And so I remember picking up the scissors, and I snipped the prenatal connection between my child and his mother. And it was a profound moment. For in a sense, from that moment onward, my son has been on his own. Oh yeah, his parents were still around to help. But that day, I unleashed him to live his own life. It became my job to wean him away and to grow him up and to teach him to make his own decisions and solve his own problems and develop his own skills and thoughts and ambitions. And this is where a parent's faith kicks in. You see, the overprotective parent who smothers their child, who's afraid of letting their child brush up against the real world, suffers from a lack of faith. Oh, I'm aware of the dangers, I know the risks. You need to know there are also risks of holding on for too long. At some point, you've got to turn loose. When my first son, Zach, turned five, we enrolled him in kindergarten. And on the first day, I'll never forget it, Kathy dressed him up. She put a smile on her face. She took him to school, handed him over to the teacher. And then she came back home and she cried for three hours until it was time to pick him up again. I'll never forget that. It was the first of many, many steps in the process of letting go. And it's interesting. Now we're poised. The Lord willing. Oh, the Lord willing. For our fourth and final child to graduate from college. He told me this past week that if all goes well, Mac's going to walk on December the 13th. I got that date circled on my calendar, man. December the 13th. It'll be the first time in 13 years I haven't had a college tuition payment. December 13th. (laughs) Have I told you I'm looking forward to December the 13th? But boy, in between Zach's first day of school and Mac's last day of school, there's been lots and lots of letting go. Actually, I don't really like this phrase, letting go. It's not accurate. For we're not letting go, we're turning over. For every time I've let go, I've had to trust God to be where I can't be and to do what I can no longer do. 
Psalm 127 verse 1 is true for us all. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. You see, there are no super parents. The only super parent is God. And ultimately, we're trusting our kids to Him. We all should be like Hannah who brought her son Samuel to the tabernacle and turned him over to the priest. That's what God wants you and me to do. God desires for us to turn our children over to Him and then to trust Him with their safety and their welfare. God gives us our kids. Then we do all we can to teach them obedience and respect. And then we give them back to Him. It is a selfless act. It is what we call parenthood. Let me close with the 127th Psalm. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. At the time this psalm was written, archery was a new invention in the science of weaponry. Prior to this, its utilization, soldiers fought hand-to-hand, face-to-face. But with the introduction of the bow and arrow, all of a sudden a soldier could now strike a target at a distance without personally encountering and engaging his opponent. And this is a father's desire and goal for his kids. To send them on ahead like arrows from his bow. To help them go where he can't travel. To accomplish more than his hands will ever reach. It's been said every parent is a Moses. We're preparing our children for a world we will not enter ourselves. We see the promised land, but we won't enter. Years ago, a dad at the ballpark, he asked me, he said, don't you hope your kids turn out like you? And I said, you got to be kidding. If my kids only turn out as good as me, I'll be severely disappointed. I'm praying they turn out far better than me. I want my kids to sell further and higher and straighter and farther than their dad. I'm just the archer. And it's up to me to set the arrow on a course that will strike its intended target. And so let me state it a final time. A parent's purpose is to teach their children obedience and respect. And they do it with two tools. Training or discipline and admonition or encouragement. All the while, they avoid provoking their children to wrath. As we've noted before, God's power always accompanies His purpose. This morning, I suggest we end by praying for that power.